So I'm at the point where I get to have the pleasure of introducing our first speaker. Um, we're going to start the meeting today by having uh, Bob Silicano, from Johns, uh, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University, uh, talk about uh, barriers to HIV eradication. Uh, good morning. I'd like to thank the organizers for uh, asking me to speak. It's a real pleasure to uh, talk to this uh, group because of the extremely important work that you do. I was asked to talk about HIV eradication. There's been a lot of interest in this recently as a result of the cure of a single patient, a patient with AML who received a bone marrow transplant from an HLA-matched uh, donor who was also homozygous for the 32 base pair deletion in the HIV co-receptor CCR5. And while this is a uh, highly impractical strategy uh, due, due in part to the risks associated with bone marrow transplantation, it has uh, generated a lot of interest, uh, again, in uh, the possibility that we may be able to cure HIV infection someday. And so I'd like to uh, just sort of give you an update of where eradication uh, research uh, stands. So... Um, in my opinion, uh, in order to cure HIV infection, we have to do three things. Okay, so uh, what we need to do is uh, first stop the virus from replicating. If we can't do that, uh, then, then all hope is lost. Uh, if we can do that, then uh, we also need to identify all of the reservoirs where non-replicating forms of the virus are persisting, uh, and then we have to figure out ways to eliminate each one. So I'll talk about the progress towards each of these three goals, concentrating on the first one, because that's actually directly relevant to uh, management of patients uh, today. So first, uh, we need to review some fundamental work on uh, the dynamics of viral replication. This is work originally done by uh, uh, David Ho and George Shaw and Mike Sag, uh, looking at what happens when you start patients on potent antiretroviral drugs. Uh, and what they showed was uh, that uh, the level of plasma virus falls uh, very, very quickly when patients start on a potent antiretroviral drug. And they realized that this rapid drop could be explained with a very simple uh, model uh, of the dynamics of HIV infection, a mathematical model that's actually critical for understanding uh, things like viral reservoirs, uh, low-level viremia, blips, and so forth. Uh, and in this model, uh, uninfected cells interact with the virus, and they become infected at a rate uh, that we'll call beta. And then the infected cells go on and produce virus at a characteristic rate, K. Uh, and then both the free virus and the infected cells decay at characteristic rates. Now, they made the fundamental assumption that the newer antiretroviral drugs were powerful enough to stop all new infection of susceptible cells, that is, to reduce beta to zero. And it's important to remember that all the drugs we use to treat HIV infection work by blocking new infection of susceptible cells rather than by blocking virus production from a cell that's already got an integrated uh, provirus. So, so the drugs affect beta but not K. And if they reduce beta to zero, then this model predicts that the level of viremia will fall uh, really as a function of how long the infected cells survive, this decay rate A that I mentioned. Uh, and so this decay rate was measured, turned out to be very rapid, and it's a reflection of the very short half-life of the cells that produce most of the plasma virus, only about one day. So this gave us an idea that the infection was extremely dynamic with lots of new cells getting infected every day, uh, and that allows very rapid viral evolution. 
And that's the reason why treatment with any single drug leads to rapid rebound in viremia due to the evolution of resistance. Now, of course, the key discovery in the field was the realization that if you simultaneously start multiple drugs, then you can get a drop in the viral load down to the limit of detection. And as you can see, this is a biphasic drop. There's a second slower phase that we think is due to another population of cells with a slower decay rate. And we still don't know what these cells are. But in any event, David Ho in 1997 took this second slower decay rate and extrapolated it down to zero residual infected cells and predicted that it would be possible to cure the infection in two to three years, which obviously didn't happen. Now, at about this time, we became concerned that there was another population of infected cells that had an even slower decay rate. And those are latently infected CD4 cells. And they arise really as a result of the normal physiology of CD4 cells. So most of the CD4 cells in the body are in a resting state, either naive cells that have not yet responded to any foreign antigen or memory cells that have previously participated in some immune response. And these cells will circulate throughout the lymphoid organs, essentially awaiting encounter with some antigen that they can recognize. And when that happens, the cells undergo blast transformation. They get larger and proliferate, and they generate the activated effector cells that are necessary to clear whatever infection the person is responding to. And then at the conclusion of the response, most of those activated cells die, but some of them survive and go back to a resting state as memory cells. And these cells survive for long periods of time, decades in fact, and allow you to respond to the same antigen again in the future. This is simply the, the fundamental paradigm that governs adaptive immunity. Now, in HIV infection, what happens is that the virus replicates in the activated cells, and it tends to kill them very quickly. That's what that decay rate A is all about. It doesn't really replicate in resting cells very well, but occasionally uh, some of these activated cells can become infected as they're going back to a resting state uh, to become memory cells. Uh, and something very interesting happens when that transition occurs, and that is HIV gene expression is turned off. Uh, this is the uh, HIV promoter, essentially a molecular switch that turns off the virus uh, when the cell is in a resting state and turns it on when the cell is in an activated state. Uh, and uh, it's set up such that the virus uh, uh, turns off when the cell is in a resting state. And so as the cells make this transition, HIV gene expression is automatically extinguished, and you end up with a stably integrated provirus in a long-lived memory T cell, uh, but that virus is not being uh, expressed. Uh, and so essentially it's just per persisting as information. It's just 10,000 bases of DNA. Uh, and in this form, it's not uh, seen by the immune system, and it's not affected by antiretroviral drugs. If the cell gets activated again in the future, it can begin to produce virus. So this is almost a perfect recipe for viral persistence. Uh, and so uh, we, we set out to look for these cells in patients. Turns out they're present in everybody with HIV infection, but they're very rare, about one in a million. Probably not very important uh, in the natural history of the, the infection unless you want to get rid of, of the virus. And the problem is that these cells have a very long half-life. So this is now the decay rate of this pool of cells in patients on heart who have viral load less than 50. Uh, and as you can see, uh, the time scale here is years. Uh, the decay is extremely uh, slow. Uh, and uh, at this decay rate, it would take over 70 years to clear uh, this pool of lately infected cells. 
So the existence of this stable reservoir predicts that there should be another phase in this decay curve, right? Because you might imagine every day a small number of these latently infected cells will get activated and they'll produce virus. Uh, but that virus uh, can't go on and infect other cells if beta has been reduced to zero by the drugs. But in principle, it could be detected in the blood if you had a sensitive enough uh, assay. And the source population, this pool of latently infected cells, decays only, only very slowly. Uh, and so for that reason, eradication cannot be achieved, and there should be another phase in this decay curve. Now, you can't see it because it's below the limit of detection. And really, the first evidence that uh, uh, it might be there came from the observation that many patients on heart have these blips, these transient elevations in viremia. And then in 1999, David, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Roger Pomeranch, uh, used a very sensitive RT-PCR assay to show that basically everybody on heart is viremic. Uh, what heart really does is drop the level of plasma virus down to a new steady state that's simply a little bit below uh, the limit of detection. So all of your undetectable patients are actually viremic, uh, and the typical level of this residual viremia is around one copy uh, per mil. Uh, the blips that many patients have probably represent normal sort of biological and statistical fluctuation around this new steady state level of uh, residual viremia. Now, um, although we could explain this residual viremia by assuming that that heart reduces beta to zero and it leaves three different populations of infected cells with different decay rates, uh, most people in the field uh, had a different explanation for residual viremia, uh, namely that uh, the virus was still replicating at a low level in the presence of the drugs. And this would be a very disturbing scenario because it would predict eventually uh, that there would be the evolution of resistance. And there's been a, a sort of acrimonious debate between the, uh, a people who believe that residual viremia is due to ongoing replication versus simply release from stable reservoirs. And so I'd like to show you uh, the evidence that, that I think uh, convincingly shows that residual viremia essentially results from the release of virus from previously infected cells, not from ongoing replication. First of all, direct sequence analysis of the residual viremia, even during blips, does not show evidence for viral evolution. Uh, intensification studies have shown that adding a fourth drug does not reduce residual viremia, uh, this latent reservoir is not maintained by new sequences entering. Uh, rather, it's, it's stable because it's in memory T cells. And finally, I'm going to concentrate on new uh, pharmacology studies that really explain how it is that heart can stop all ongoing replication. So uh, first, with regard to the sequences, if you uh, look at the free virus in the plasma of a patient who has an undetectable viral load, and this is not easy to do, uh, but you can uh, find these viruses and sequence them and then compare them to the viruses in this stable reservoir uh, shown here in white. These are se sequences from a single patient. And here in the color triangles are sequences from the plasma virus. You can see the viruses are populations are intermingled, uh, very similar, in some cases identical, consistent with the idea that at least some of this residual viremia simply represents viruses in the stable reservoir, uh, the cells have become activated and have released a virus into the plasma. Um, and if you sequence this virus, you don't see any new resistance mutations. So the low-level viremia is essentially drug-sensitive uh, virus. 
now, intensification is, is really sort of a direct way to test whether ongoing replication is occurring. And the idea here is to take patients on an optimal heart regimen who have viral load below 50 copies per mil. Uh, and here are some representative patients. You can see uh, the residual viremia is between 50 copies per mil and, and one copy per mil. Uh, and then uh, ask what happens if you add a fourth drug, uh, in this case, adizanivir, boosted adizanivir, for eight weeks. Now, remember, in the setting of ongoing replication, uh, the virus is produced by cells with a very short half-life. And so what you would expect uh, is that viremia would decay uh, at that decay rate A that I mentioned to below the limit of detection even of an assay that has a single copy sensitivity. Uh, but what actually happens is that nothing happens. Intensification has no effect on residual viremia. Uh, here's the levels after. Uh, and the same results have been uh, seen now in, in several different studies with several different intensification drugs. And what this means is that we've reached the theoretical limit of heart in terms of reducing residual viremia. We will never do better than this with more drugs or different antiretroviral drugs. And that's because these viruses in the plasma are coming from cells that were infected prior to the initiation of therapy. Now, with regard uh, to the latent reservoir, it's been argued that these sequences are turning over due to new infection. Uh, if that were true, you might see that the viruses in the plasma, for example, this red sequence, would, would eventually appear in the latent reservoir in patients on heart, and that does not happen. Uh, rather, this latent reservoir is intrinsically stable because it's in memory uh, T cells. And finally, um, uh, we now, I think, have a better understanding of how it is that heart can actually stop all ongoing replication. Now, to, to address this question, we have to know, well, how much replication is occurring? Obviously, the viral load gives you, gives you an idea, uh, but a, a more precise way to say this is how many new infection events or how many new infected cells arise in one viral generation? Because if you could stop all the new infection events in one generation, uh, then there'd be nothing else to worry about. Well, it turns out we can calculate that from that simple model that I mentioned. And as, as you might expect, it's directly related to the viral load. Uh, so uh, in a patient with a sort of average viral load of 30,000 copies per mil, this number, this number of new infection events per generation, or essentially infected cells arising per day, is about a million. So that's a very interesting number. It tells you how well heart has to work. To produce a complete and immediate halt in viral replication, you have to have a one million-fold reduction in new infection events, a six-log reduction, okay? So how well do our current drugs do? Well, we don't know, and that's because the current way of analyzing antiretroviral drug activity doesn't tell you uh, the critical information. Drugs are analyzed, uh, drug activity is analyzed based on the IC50, the concentration that gives you 50% inhibition uh, of uh, viral infection in some in vitro assay. And the problem is 50% inhibition is a very small amount of, of inhibition on the scale that we're talking about. We want six logs of inhibition. And it's, it's very unfortunate that all of this sort of analysis of antiretroviral drug potency and drug resistance is based simply on the analysis of the IC50. And the problem is the IC50 doesn't tell you what you need to know. So here's kind of a hypothetical dose-response curve for an antiretroviral drug. Uh, and in addition, in addition to the IC50, the other factor that's important, but which has essentially been ignored, is a factor called the slope parameter, which is essentially a measure of the steepness of the dose-response curve. Uh, and these are curves with the same IC50, but different values of this slope parameter. 
doesn't look like it makes any difference, uh, especially since we use these drugs at concentrations above the IC50, so in this pink uh, shaded range. It looks like the curves all come together. But this is uh, only because the current way of plotting dose-response curves for antiviral drugs is, in my opinion, uh, completely inappropriate. Uh, so viruses replicate in an exponential fashion. Everybody understands this. Uh, videos go viral on the Internet, right? So pe people get this concept. Uh, uh, therefore, why are we still plotting dose-response curves in a linear 1 to 100 uh, fashion? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, what you need to do is plot the y-axis in a logarithmic scale. So you can see the amount of infection going down from 100% of control to 10%, 1%, and so forth. So if you simply log transform in your mind uh, the y-axis, uh, maybe you, some of you can do this in your head. I certainly couldn't. But uh, when you do this, what happens is truly shocking. So now here's the same curves with uh, the correct y-axis. Uh, for drugs with the same IC50, but different values of slope parameter. What happens is that the curves diverge dramatically in the clinically relevant concentration range, such that drugs with higher values of the slope parameter produce much more inhibition by orders and orders of magnitude. Uh, so by this analysis, the slope parameter should be the most important factor in antiretroviral drug activity. Shockingly, after the development of 25 antiretroviral drugs by uh, numerous drug companies, nobody knew what the values of the slope parameter uh, were. Uh, so Lin Chen and our group measured them uh, and found that, in fact, they vary in a class-specific way, with the non-nukes and protease inhibitors having actually much higher values uh, than the uh, NRTIs and integrase inhibitors. So, well, what difference does that make? Now, uh, in unfortunately, in order to show that to you, I have to give you one more way to plot the dose-response curve. So here's the old way, uh, but the way that is used in the field right now. This should never be used. Uh, here's a better way with the log transform y-axis. And here's the best way. Uh, and this is a mathematical transformation that straightens out the dose-response curve. And in these plots, the amount of inhibition, essentially on a log scale, goes up with the log of the drug concentration. And the steeper the line, uh, the steeper uh, the slope value. So here's a curve for a hypothetical uh, drug with a slope value of 1. Uh, and uh, uh, the y-axis is very close to uh, a parameter that we have previously described called the inhibitory potential, which is simply the number of logs by which the drug knocks down one cycle of viral replication. So that's kind of similar to that idea that I was talking about where we need a six logs in order to get complete suppression of new infection. So you can see that this drug uh, at the peak concentration is giving you about three logs of inhibition. Now, here's another drug with the same IC50 but a steeper slope. Uh, and uh, you, let's say that this is the clinical concentration range. You can see that the first drug is giving you three logs of inhibition, but the second one with the same IC50 uh, is giving you much higher levels. Uh, by the time you get into the clinical concentration range, you're going to be up at six or eight uh, logs. So here's some actual HIV drugs. So here's raltegravir uh, in this uh, analysis. Uh, these lines represent curves from many different uh, cells from many different donors. And um, you can see that uh, the lines are straight. Uh, and uh, in the clinical concentration range, you get up to about two logs of inhibition. Here's the same analysis for atazanavir. Uh, first of all, uh, what's different is that the lines are not straight. They curve upward. Uh, and um, 
uh, in the clinical concentration range, you can see that, that way before you even get there, uh, uh, you've gotten to very, very high levels of inhibition. Um, now, here's a similar analysis for all current antiretroviral drugs, and it, uh, it looks complicated, but we can, we can straighten this out by sorting the drugs based on, their, on the class and organizing them sort of in order of decreasing slope. And what you see is that all of the PIs have very, very steep uh, dose-response curves of the same shape. Uh, and um, what this means is that as soon as you get a little bit above the IC50, the amount of inhibition increases very dramatically for just a small increase in drug concentration. Uh, so for the PIs, essentially it's like an on-off switch. Above a certain concentration, you have extremely high inhibition. Below that concentration, uh, you have very little inhibition. Now, that doesn't mean that it's a good drug simply because it has a steep slope. It just means that the relationship between the concentration and the amount of inhibition uh, is different than for other drugs that have a, a, a lower slope value. What really matters is where does that uh, sort of upward inflection occur in relation to the clinical concentration range. So in this plot, uh, we've normalized uh, uh, the, um, uh, the effect based on the peak plasma concentration. And you can see that for four drugs, efavirenz, darunavir, atazanavir, and lopinavir, the curves inflect upward way before you get to the clinical concentration range. Uh, and uh, here are the rest of the drugs. So um, by taking this to, into account and also the pharmacokinetics, that is, uh, how does the drug concentration vary over the dosing interval, we can actually compute the average in inhibitory potential of a drug uh, over the dosing interval. Uh, and uh, this, we think, gives us the best way to compare antiretroviral drugs in terms of their sort of raw antiviral activity. And this is something that you never see. Uh, and this is what it looks like uh, in comparison to that six-log target range that I mentioned. Okay, you can see immediately why you need combination therapy. Uh, it's only the runivir uh, as a single agent that has enough inhibitory potential to produce a complete and immediate halt in, in viral replication. Uh, you can imagine that other combinations of drugs would get you there if you knew how to do the mathematics of, of the drug combinations. Uh, and you can also see the value of the, uh, the non-nukes and the protease inhibitors. These are the drugs that get you close to that six-log uh, target range because of the steepness of their dose-response curves. Now, what's also curious about this is that some drugs that have proven very effective clinically, uh, raltegravir and maraviroc, have very low uh, inhibitory potential because of low slope values. So how do we explain that? Well, one hypothesis that you, you could make is that, well, maybe these drugs work very well in combination with other drugs because of favorable interactions with other drugs. Uh, so how do we calculate that? Well, it turns out it's an old problem in pharmacology that hasn't really been solved. There's sort of two major models for uh, how to look at the interactions of multiple drugs. One. Uh, called bliss independence, assumes that the drugs behave independently uh, and has a certain mathematical formula. And another, uh, low additivity, uh, makes the assumption that the drugs are sort of competing for the same binding site. And that's clearly true for, for example, two non-nukes or two PIs. Um, but, and, and this has different uh, mathematical formula. Importantly, uh, if we look at two hypothetical drugs, the predictions of the two models are different for the combined effect. In the bliss independence, that is, if the drugs act independently, you get a much higher combined effect. So a priori, you might expect that uh, combinations of antiretroviral drugs would follow 
of these models based on whether or not they compete for the same binding site. For example, AZT and D4T, two thymidine analogs, compete for the same binding site and should follow Lowy additivity, whereas uh, drugs from different classes, for example, should follow Bliss uh, independence and show a higher combined effect. Uh, but there has been no systematic analysis of which model applies to antiretroviral drugs. Uh, and so uh, we've done this and come up with some very interesting uh, findings. Uh, first of all, that uh, uh, the thymidine analogs, AZT and D4T, which have low inhibitory potential on their own, actually interact very favorably with uh, other RT inhibitors. The integrase inhibitors interact favorably with drugs from all other classes, uh, and Mirabarak also does. So these results explain, I think, the clinical utility of some drugs which have fairly low inhibitory potential uh, on their own. Uh, so using this kind of analysis, we can actually predict the combined effects of three drug combinations, just in terms of this inhibitory potential, this raw sort of antiviral activity. So here are all possible three drug combinations uh, color-coded by drug class. Uh, and the white bars represent sort of the range of estimates of inhibitory potential. Now, only a small fraction of these regimens have been tested in clinical trials, uh, and the clinical trial results are shown here. Unfortunately, clinical trial results are hard to uh, sort of correlate with antiviral activity because clinical trial results are also influenced by adherence, whether or not the patient actually takes uh, the drug or not. But we can make some sense out of this by saying, well, what is the regimen with the lowest inhibitory potential that has produced a very good clinical effect, 80, greater than 80% of patients undetectable at one year? That turns out to be a raltegravir-based regimen that we estimate has about five logs of inhibitory potential. So we can sort of say that that's the minimal inhibitory potential you need. That's actually close to that six log uh, value we, we determined from viral dynamics. So one of the interesting things is that there's many regimens that get above this kind of minimal uh, threshold. Some of the regimens that have higher inhibitory potential that have not done as well clinically are simply regimens that are poorly uh, tolerated. Uh, and some regimens actually have extraordinarily high uh, levels of antiviral activity, above 12 logs. Now, there's only 10 to the 12th lymphocytes in the whole body. Uh, so above 12 logs is really a phenomenal level of antiviral uh, activity. It's not hard to imagine how hard can, uh, given this, uh, stop all ongoing replication. Now, uh, so what I'm, let me summarize what I'm trying to say here. We think heart really works because some of the drugs have very steep dose response curves uh, and other drugs interact favorably in drug combinations. You need about five logs of combined inhibitory potential for a successful regimen. Many regimens achieve this. Uh, now, historically, we focused on uh, regimens that have two nukes, and those are, are uh, shown in the blue colors. Those end up actually towards the bottom of this uh, scale, and, and the reasons that, that we use those regimens are really historical in nature. Uh, at the other end are regimens that have an extraordinarily high inhibitory potential, most of which have never been tested. But as I mentioned, you probably don't need all of that inhibitory potential. If you get above five logs and if the patient takes the drugs correctly, then that's probably what you need. Okay, so uh, I hope that this has convinced you that um, we're very close to being able to stop all ongoing replication. Uh, now, what about the other two steps in achieving a cure? I'll go through this very quickly. First, we have to find all of the reservoirs where the virus is persisting. I mentioned one in resting CD4 cells. Uh, turns out there's probably another one, and we know this by looking at the residual viremia. So here's that phylogenetic tree that I showed you. Uh, uh, I only showed you part of the tree. Here's the rest of the tree. 
And what's interesting is that in this patient and in about half of the patients that we studied, uh, we see oligoclonal populations of virus in the plasma, that is the identical virus appearing over and over again, uh, and we can't find that virus in resting CD4 cells, suggesting that it's coming from some other source, and we don't know what that is. So there may be another major viral reservoir. Uh, and finally, um, once we identify these reservoirs, how do we get rid of them? Well, um, most of the effort is focused on this reservoir and resting CD4 cells, and the original idea was to activate the cells, and that would make the latent virus uh, come out, and things like IL-2 or anti-CD3, which induce global T-cell activation, were used. Unfortunately, that activates all of the non-infected T-cells and produces unacceptable uh, side effects due to excessive inflammatory, pro-inflammatory cytokines. So people have been looking for a way to turn on latent virus without turning on every T-cell. And one of the advances in the field has been the development of a way to generate these latently infected cells in a test tube uh, from primary T-cells. And a number of labs have done this. This is the way that our lab does this. We take a T-cells uh, and uh, transduce them with a gene called BCL2, which allows them to survive in vitro. Normally, they don't survive very well in vitro. Uh, and then we can infect them uh, with HIV, a recombinant HIV that carries green fluorescent protein. So it turns the infected cells green. Uh, and then we just culture them uh, in the absence of stimulation for a long period of time so that they go back to a resting state like they would in vivo and go into a state of latent infection. Uh, and then uh, we take these cells, and if we activate them, uh, they'll begin to produce virus again. So we can use this system to screen for drugs that will turn on latent HIV. And it turns out not to be hard to find us uh, compounds that do this. This is an example of a hit that came up from one of our screens, a drug that turns on latent HIV without inducing global T cell activation. Unfortunately, this drug is uh, very toxic. Uh, one of the interesting things that we found is that disulfiram, or antabuse, is actually fairly good at reactivating uh, latent uh, HIV. Uh, and because it has a low toxicity, it's being tested now in a clinical trial um, carried out by Steve Deeks. Um, I think it's extremely unlikely that this will turn out to be uh, effective on its own. Uh, reversal of latency, just like antiretroviral therapy, is probably going to require drug uh, combinations. But this is the kind of thing that you're going to be seeing in the future, clinical trials of latency reversing agents done in patients uh, on heart. Now, one of the things that hasn't been addressed yet is if we turn the, the virus back on, will the cells actually die? If they don't die, then we really haven't done anything. So the way we've approached this is in this model system to culture these latently infected cells after reactivation with CD8-positive T cells from the same donor, cytolytic T cells, in order to see whether or not uh, these cytolytic T cells can kill the latently infected cells that uh, uh, have been reactivated. Uh, and if you set up this system in, in, in cells from a normal donor, actually, you don't see any killing. You can turn on the latent virus and, and the cells don't die. Uh, if you do this with cells from uh, an elite suppressor, these patients who control HIV infection without treatment, uh, they die. Uh, they're killed by cytolytic T cells. And then the response of patients from heart is highly variable. Uh, and this suggests that we may need uh, to enhance the HIV-specific cytolytic T cell response in order to eliminate uh, these latently infected cells. And finally, uh, one other advance that I think is going to help with eradication uh, research is an animal model uh, of heart. And this is done in SIV-infected macaques. Uh, and if you treat them with essentially uh, heart, 
you can reduce the viral load to uh, below the limit of detection. They have latently infected cells, just like in humans, and this model probably will be used to explore some of these eradication strategies. So where do we stand? I think in terms of stopping the virus from replicating, I think we're there. Uh, but uh, if you don't believe me, there are certainly uh, regimens that could be tried that have much, much higher inhibitory potential than uh, the ones we're currently using. Identifying all the reservoirs, um, this is the real elephant in the room. There may be other reservoirs that we don't know about. Uh, we'll have to eliminate all of them to be successful. Uh, and then finding ways to eliminate them. This involves a combination of lots of approaches uh, and lots of uh, techniques, uh, many of which are, uh, I would say, progress is, is now being made. So let me just thank the people in my lab who did the work that I showed. Um, the work on the latent reservoir was done by my wife, Janet, and Deanna Finzi um, when she was in the lab, uh, along with help from large numbers of my colleagues at Hopkins in the infectious disease uh, division, without whom uh, this would have not uh, been possible. The intensification study was done by Jason Denoso and was a collaboration with uh, uh, the NCI group headed by John Coffin. Uh, the work on uh, the, this, um, the other reservoir for HIV was done by Tim Brennan, and the work on the slope parameter was done by uh, Lynn Shen and Moore McMahon. And I'll stop there um, and, uh, I guess, take questions. Thank you. So um, we have about 10 minutes for questions. I'd encourage you to come up to the mics. And you can ask them in real time and get clarification. Otherwise, you can fill out the cards and bring them up, and we'll read them. We'll start with Dr. Mike Sag. Very nice, Bob, as usual. Um, we're going to hear in a little bit about hepatitis C. Um, and there's a bevy of new drugs. And I wonder if you all have used the slope assessment to see which drugs of the 30-plus hepatitis C drugs that are coming out, which ones are showing the better slope parameters against that virus? Have you done that yet? Yeah, you know, we, this is something that we really wanted to do. Um, it turns out to be much harder to break into the hepatitis C field and get the companies to give us the drugs and uh, to get the model system, which um, uh, the model system is not nearly as advanced as for HIV. And one of the, one of the interesting things is for hepatitis C, um, all of the drugs affect K but not beta, so it's kind of opposite from HIV. So they infect essentially virus production by a cell that's already uh, infected. So we think it would be very interesting to do this in our preliminary work. It looks like the uh, hep C protease inhibitors do have a steep slope, uh, but it's very, very early. And I, I think it's a great question. But On this side of the room? Uh, Laura Armas, Texas. Uh, I, I have a question. I'm assuming that all these predicted inhibitory potential curves are done in wild-type virus. Do you have something similar for resistant virus for those patients who are a little later? And then my second question is uh, regarding to the reservoirs. Uh, are you looking uh, for reservoirs, uh, sex difference, gender differences? Uh, are there different reservoirs in men than women? Uh, because obviously we know that there is... Uh, very good response to antiretroviral in women, sometimes even better. So uh, those are my two questions. Thank you. Yeah, so those are, those are great questions. Uh, so with regard to, to resistant virus, it's interesting that um, all of the analysis of resistance is based on the assumption that resistance mutations change only the IC50. So this is, so for example, the monogram resistance test, and essentially everything that's been done in resistance makes that assumption. They assume that the shape of the dose-response curve doesn't change. It's just shifted uh, to a higher IC50 by the resistance mutation. Turns out 
that most drug resistance mutations affect the slope as well as the IC50, so that you cannot accurately determine the amount of inhibition in the clinical concentration range from the fold change in IC50. That tells you something, but it doesn't give you the whole story. And we have recently published a paper on this, which, as far as I can tell, nobody has read, but uh, I think it's very important. And it, it's up to us to determine, well, in what situation is, are the current clinical measures of resistance not giving you uh, the right information. Um, with regard to reservoirs and uh, gender differences, I mean, I think it's certainly possible, and there are a number of studies that have explored, uh, well, really sort of more viral compartmentalization uh, um, uh, in, you know, for example, the male versus female rep reproductive uh, organs, um, but uh, sort of no definitive idea yet about really distinct reservoirs and in, in, in gender differences. An important question. Um, from one of the cards, why don't double protease inhibitor regimens work better than they've, than they've been shown to in clinical trials? Well, I mean, one of the problems is that if you have two protease inhibitors, those drugs are competing for the same binding site. So you don't get um, uh, this sort of extra degree of inhibition that, that, that I termed bliss independence. They're, not, they're essentially not uh, behaving independently and I, th I think that's one reason, but I think the other reason is simply due to the toxicity of the regimen. All, and the problem with this analysis is that all of the clinical outcomes are uh, complicated by the fact that, that the way clinical trials are evaluated doesn't allow you to distinguish antiviral effect from, you know, whether or not the patient uh, takes the drug correctly. My name is Dr. Marshall Souza from McGregor Clinic, Fort Myers. Bob, thank you very much for that excellent uh, talk. Uh, my question is regarding this Berlin patient, so-called Berlin patient. Actually, he's not from Berlin. He's from San Francisco. Uh, the, you know, the bone marrow transplant, because my patient's on ADAP is asking me, can you order a bone marrow transplant for me? <laughs> it's okay. Uh, we are doing a study in San Francisco about the gene therapy. Can you comment on that study where they take the T cells out and yeah. modify the yeah. CCR5 gene? Yeah. Thank you. So that's a great point. So, so the Berlin patient, uh, the physicians who were treating them had a very clever idea of finding an HLA-matched donor who had a homozygous deletion in, in CCR5. And that's obviously very, very hard to do, and it's going to be completely impractical. I think one of the big developments in the field is it's now possible to take cells from the patient, so they'll be HLA uh, perfectly identical, uh, and knock out the CCR5 gene. And the technology for that has advanced very, very quickly due to something called zinc finger nucleases, which can go in and specifically target individual genes. So I think that, that part of it is going to go very, very well. The problem uh, that hasn't yet been solved is what are you going to do with those cells when you put them back in? Are you going to have to put the patient through a preparative regimen that involves chemotherapy and radiation like the Berlin patient had? And is it uh, ethical to do that in somebody who... Uh, where the alternative is simply heart, uh, which is, uh, is very good now. So, so I think that's, um, that's the big issue. The CCR5 knockout is really not going to be a problem. It's more how do you get reconstitution uh, with the uh, engineered uh, cells, and that problem hasn't been solved. Of course, then the other issue is, of course, the expense of any, any manipulation that or any 
strategy that involves an in vitro, complex in vitro manipulation, one patient at a time, obviously is something that can only be done in major medical centers and is not really practical for certainly a, on the global scale. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.